are we this Oy fine, fine Friday? Oy vey you know, right. I, f- I fucking feel hungover, even though I didn't have a drop to drink. Ah, well, that's where we are right now in New York City. It's just been a crazy week. It's been insane. It's been what nutty. a week it has been. It just mm-hmm. took me fucking like thirty minutes to find parking by my office before I decided to just pull into the lot. Um, I, I get the cranks, but I had an amazing week, and the last night was absolutely incredible for you. We had a great. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, we should mention we have a great guest coming up in the second half of the pod uh, that we recorded earlier this week. The amazing mm-hmm. Ralph DeLuca, who I think was entertaining and amusing and really bright it's an on the issues of collecting art advisors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a raconteur, I think, is the phrase we're looking for. Yeah, highly recommend you stick around for Ralph. Uh, but before we get to that, you know, a lot going on in New York City. You want to start with with last night? What happened? Yeah, let's work backwards. I mean, I was bopping all over the city. I actually went earlier in the afternoon uh, to meet friend of the pod, James Curtis and Michael Schaefer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were supposed to work out together. He flaked on that using his children Typical. as an excuse. Um, I'm, I'm about to flake on him today. He doesn't know it yet, but <laughs> that text forthcoming <laughs> from my thumbs. Um, but uh, we, we, we went to old, old Capo Massa to have a little mm-hmm. snacky uh, okay. snack. I was able to pop in and see uh, the brilliant Roe Etheridge's photography show and that kind of ground floor uh gallery mm-hmm. behind the bookshop at the, the gugosian gallery there at 980 madison uh you know had 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 the lunch special added on a soup at the end and a spicy tuna hand roll each you gotta add those quite enough you, you, you have to gotta add, add those. the soup and the, the spicy hand roll it's quite good at capital Moss. i'm a big fan obviously larry is not paying us I to like- this no, no, and I definitely didn't receive any sort of discount on the uh, egregiously oh, God, priced no. lunch. I like, the, I like the hand roll comes like it, the seaweed is so crispy and it comes kind of like wrapped in a paper. Mm-hmm. You peel off it anyway, and then we wandered uh, down Madison, uh, uh, Yakin, and uh, popped over to the Chime and Reed Gallery mm-hmm. to see your friend and mine. I want to see an early preview of Joel Messler's show of Rabbi paintings. I think the, the rabbis show is called Rabbis. Tell, tell um, me about the Rabbis. Well, they're they're very much a divergence from what we know of Joel over the past few years, who's risen to market prominence and auction Mm -hmm. superstar, uh, doing these boldly graphic, uh, oftentimes text-based paintings in the uh, in the idiom, in a way, of Ed Ruscha, with like super colorful backgrounds. They 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 regrade on Instagram. This newer body of work, not showing at one of his kind of listed gallery representatives being David Kuransky or LVMH uh, at Tom Reed, are all these uh, hand-painted, beautiful uh, paintings of rabbis, works on mm-hmm. paper and canvas. And they're actually really inc- incredible looking. I didn't know what to expect. And, like, the dude can really paint. There's some incredible pictures in here. And it's about his upbringing. Um, it's in some ways, you know, harkens back to earlier work of his, but like it was incredible right. show. So, uh, jotted up with Joel there, uh, hung out and saw the show, uh, and then had to, uh, to pop back up town to the abode to, uh, to change into the evening wear. And, uh, I went down to, I know a gallery that you'd went earlier in the day, uh, down to the Gagosian gallery, uh, on 24th mm-hmm. street, the space that used to be Mary Boone's space, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, right. I was there as well. I think I tipped out right before you got there. Wow. And uh, saw the show of uh, our friend Jonas Woods Prince. It was pretty cool. And a very, very impressive print show. I think that there are some that just really blew me away. The amount of detail that, that we put into these is remarkable. I got there at 6.10, very early for an opening, you know, already slam-packed. It was crazy, you know. Uh, the owner of a gallery a few blocks south of the Gagosian Gallery was in attendance, which I found surprising. Say the least. Yeah, Dave, I, I saw he was still there when I got there. David's Warner was uh, with his daughter was uh, chomp, chopping it up with uh, Mas- when I was there at least Massimo Gioni, uh, mm-hmm. curator at the New Museum, and his wife Cecilia Almani, obviously coming off her spectacular Venice Biennale uh, that I she curated. Well. Um, yeah, I thought it was strange to see David there. I mean, he just looks like a he just looks like a dad too. He's like rocking the, In puffer. the puffer. Yeah, um, so sick. Yeah, style icon. Yeah, New Balances, so sick. G- yeah, love yeah, to see total that icon. I didn't um, see Larry there, although I, I did see a picture of him at at the gallery at some point that Jonas posted. I thought it was funny, you know, because because legendary, like they've never broken bread, Larry and David. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they're really even on like, hey, what's up, terms. 
No, I don't so think they were in the gallery at the same time. But it's, you know, Jonas Wood is an artist that can bring everyone together. Everyone loves Jonas Wood. You know, uh, well, and I obviously think... Jonas's wife, Shio, uh, uh, right. a, a, a ceramicist, uh, shows with the Zwerner Gallery. So there's some familial connections, if nothing else. Um, I, th- I thought the show was really nice. I mean, it's, you know, he's... Jonas is really into printmaking, as many I've noticed West Coast artists have been, going back to the days in the 60s and 70s of Gemini GEL. Jonas actually has opened his own sort of print shop, I believe, um, mm-hmm. that are making some of these uh, in, through his own process and is very heavily involved. They're incredible, the detail and texture. I'm just like, I'm not a prints guy. It's like a specific I, I market. It ain't my market. I'm excited to get the book um, and actually just dive into Hallie's Remake because, yeah, like, again, I'm not as well-versed in the world of printmaking as it should be. You know, uh, I'm fascinated by it. Uh, and I haven't written anything specifically about printmaking, but, you know, Jonas, these look great. And, you know, they'll well, you know, be bought by a large number of people who could never, ever afford or have access to the painting. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's about. I mean, I come at it from that point. It's like, oh, if you can't get a painting, I guess you can get one of these or even a work on paper. But I think there are specific people that really just collect prints, and it's more mm-hmm. than just the economic thing. Like, they, they like something about the democracy of it, and I know that Jonas does. And they were really approachable in terms of price points. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so, you know, not not really my market, but a cool thing to see, and it was definitely popping off. Um, I'm not sure what you then did. I think you, you uh, I'll get to dinner in a second. I think you had some adventures before you went into your full evening plans. Where'd you head? I ducked uh, into uh, Curse Brooklyn to see friend of the pod, Nomi Fry, interview the legend who we discussed on the pod last week, Brenny Sinellis, at some anonymous bland event space in a horrible high-rise in downtown Brooklyn. Great conversation, though. Man, it was it was really fun. The room was electric. Brett was on fire. It was great. I was bummed to miss that. Like, obviously, he's a hero. Uh, Nomi's mm-hmm. brilliant um, at everything she seems to do. Um and uh, I'm sure it was a great conversation. And did, have you finished the book as of yet, Mr. Freeman? Uh, I, I am on the cusp of finishing it because I have to rush up. Do you want me to give you the answer? Do you want me to like, you know. I think I know what happened. Up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not about, although it is although it is in some ways a murder mystery and a horror book, it's not really a whodunit so much right. as a how done it mm-hmm. uh, in a way. Which um, and, I, it actually I, gets I pretty, more. It actually gets complicated at the end because in, in all of Brett's, work i would say of fiction like veracity uh mm-hmm. and whether you can trust the narrator or not is very much yes. called into question and that's mm-hmm. that's that's no exception towards the end of this book as like what actually occurred is is quite in question at least for me as a reader um you know uh and i think that's something brett has often played with uh mm-hmm. in in his in his works um and also the way he mixes in like is this fact or fiction he almost you know he writes this book as though it is fact so you're already um, there's layers of duplicity at play. Um, I mean, the, the dude can just write. Just the things about driving around mm-hmm. L.A., like the little details. Um, I think we. I think you and I texted about that. I texted a few people. I really want someone to do a playlist of every pop song that's mentioned in the book uh, in order Absolutely. that they're mentioned. Uh, I don't have time to do that. If a listener could put that together for me, I think you'd get a lot of clout for that. Yeah, I was uh, seated. There was, there was seating at this uh, book talk because it was that uh, heavily attended uh, next to our, our friendly rivals at the Throwing Fits Enterprise. Um, and they also made that same comment. They said someone needs to make a playlist of all these songs because it would be a killer playlist. Someone's stealing my idea there. I hate to see it. Um, who else? Uh, what, what other bold-faced names were in attendance? I, mean, I saw some photographs uh, of you by uh, w- yeah, Watchmaven. Yeah, former, former, former guest Bryn Walner was there. We chatted it up a little bit. Um, some other friends included uh, Annie Hamilton, the actress and uh, uh, raconteur, uh, Susan Corn, aka Susan Alexander, was there. Uh, very heavily attended by by a lot of you know a listers of the, the glitterati, as it were. Mm-hmm. Plus, a lot of Brett's old heads who he called out by name at the beginning of the talk, which was fun. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Was Mr. Bright Light's Big City Jay, Mer- Mer- Jay McInerney there? I didn't spot the Jayster there, which which I found surprising because he gets some shout-outs in the book. And, and I, w- I was wondering, I was going to ask if he's read it yet. Well, you know, maybe it's because it, it sounds like it was a pretty Condé-heavy event, and he's obviously a Hearst Magazine's guy, this writing as he does for, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I don't even know the name of the book. Um, well, he's married not to Not Field Hearst. and Stream, but something also. like that. He's married to Hearst. 
<laughs> He's very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, I know that. They throw some great wine parties out east, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, being that the file that he is. Uh, mm-hmm. Another another hero. Another friend of the pod, certainly, if he knew about it. Um, uh, Nomi did uh, ask but Brett. I did, there was, Nomi asked Brett yeah? the last time he was in Brooklyn, and he said the 90s. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, uh, and then there was up. an event that took... There was an event that took place, uh, at least as far as events in New York go, there was also an event that took place last night that neither you or I were able to attend, I don't think. I know I wasn't, uh, which was the talk between uh, Sean something, Tatzel, something like that, Sean and Tatzel our friend, and former guest, Dean Kissick. I wrote Dean a note apologizing for not being able to make it because I was deeply sorry to not being able to make it because it was organized by friends, uh, you know, Matt Morvek and uh, you know, his partner, Eleanor. Uh, and it looked like it was a smash hit. I know that Walter Robinson was there snapping photos, Instagramming. I'm sure that it was a packed house. Um, yeah, it was definitely a packed house. Um, I did get some recon from the event. Oh, uh, I will say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I, I mean, to fast forward a little bit, I had to go, I went back to Joel for the actual opening. It was full of all sorts of people to also be at the dinner, which I'll then describe. But mm-hmm. uh, as I sat down at the dinner, I rolled a little late because I stopped uh, at a local hotel by there to have a, to have a sparkling water and, and kind of kill some time, frankly. 8.30 dinner kills me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, uh, and as I sit down, uh, next to come in late is uh, your former uh, boss, really, and editor, Sarah, um and shout out sarah uh, douglas and she came in kind of flustered because i guess she had had some some issues with the event and had raised her voice as a questioner from the audience uh about oh connoisseurship Lord. oh wow and that, uh, that she didn't get too to into see. the details but yeah yeah she was she was pretty flustered i think it would have been some great theater to have experienced in person i think she questioned you know when you say a return to tradition or connoisseurship like what do you mean whose tradition whose connoisseurship uh, and uh, at this dinner, you know, uh, which was, I mean, I was seated uh, uh, to my right with Sarah Friedlander, fa- past guest to the pod, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously the Christie's Maven. Where was um, the dinner? Uh, had, Where was Joel's dinner? Well, this is, so I read it as Le Bibloque, uh because it said Le mm-hmm. Bibloque, and I was like, oh, I know where that is. Don't even need to think about it. Roll up there. Uh, roll with my, with my plus one, a client and, and very good friend of mine. And uh, in typical uh, Benjamin, but also Bibloque, to say it correctly, uh, fashion, they're like, no, no, I don't see this. There's no, no party for the chime in read. No, what are you talking about? Do you, Mr. Chime? Uh, listen, I have a seat for you. If you want to sit, I can give you a seat, but I don't see the reservation. <laughs> I'm like, fuck you. So I look at the host stand, like, like feeling like a speck of dirt. I look at my phone and realizing it's at Fleming's, uh, uh, which is a sister restaurant with Bibloque. So it's like Fleming's at Bibloque at Fleming's. Right. Whatever, so walk a couple blocks, uh, and that's where it was. <laughs> Still have the Cajun chicken on the menu. I don't know what the fucking difference God, is, but that's God. okay. I was going to ask. If you didn't have the Cajun chicken, I don't know what the fuck you're doing. You had it, right? Yeah, obviously. Thank I know it's one of the few people to order it. Um, that's uh, surprising. Marcus, who... Yeah, yeah. The people are getting the the uh, caco a pepe. I was like, yeah, we're not we're not an Ignacio spot. What are you doing in the caco a pepe here? <laughs> that's, um, nuts. that's nuts. Uh, you know, Rashid was there holding down uh, end of the table with us, you know, spurning a conversation, uh, obviously. Um, what are, there was like so many amusing people at my table. Uh, Adam Cohen and his mother, Cheryl, as well as his beautiful wife, Michelle, uh, were there. Um, uh, I was also next to me, the, the artist that shows, I think, with Adam's gallery in a case, and Jamal Robinson. Uh, it was like a lot of sober kings, and like, I've laughed more than I've laughed in a really long time. That's great. Oh, that's uh, incredible. Eric, so, supposed someday guest Erica Samuels, the tennis maven, also sitting with us. Um, it was nothing but chuckles. Uh, I sat there until about 11 o'clock, which was like far too late for me, as you can hear in my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, Cajun chicken was had, tuna tartare was had, uh, lots of desserts, lots of, uh, you know, uh, pot, you know, you know, kind of chocolate souffles. Um, Amazing. Yeah. So anyway, that 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 was my night. That was the night that was. You, I think you. I was. So I had plans to go down to Jonas's party. Mm-hmm. I hope he doesn't hear this because I'm going to tell him I was there. But like all of a sudden it's eleven. <laughs> they're just schlepping downtown to go to Zero Bond. Even if the mayor was likely to be there, I just couldn't make it work. I live uptown. I was uptown. Uh, that's the zone I was in. Uh, did you make it over there? Oh yes. Oh, very very much so. As soon as the talk was over, I sprinted over to Eric Adams' favorite place in New York City, the fabled Zero Bond. Zero Um And, you know, it was a star-studded evening. It was quite quite the number of people in, in attendance. 
for Jonas to celebrate, uh, you know, dozens of, of the high staffers at the Ngozian Gallery, of course, a lot of members of the Karma Gallery, who have worked with Jonas for a number of years on various projects and books and shows and all of that, were there. In and attendance. just following him around like, like they're the lost puppy dog. Jonas, Jonas, <laughs> Jonas. Yeah, that, yeah, a little bit. Um, there was Olivier Bavin was in attendance of the Clearing Gallery of New York and Los Angeles and Brussels. Um, artists such as Harold Ankart. I had a great talk with Josh Smith, one of one of the kings of the scene. Uh, who else was around? It was just it was super fun. They were passing out a lot of food from eight p.m. until well after eleven. I left at eleven. And it was still hopping. It was still banging. Was it a, a full bio to the club for for Jonas Wood? Uh, they bought out the entire private fourth floor, which I had never been to before, which I think is just held for events. Um, and then the fifth floor, I think there were some members still going up there. So it wasn't a complete, you know, uh, five floor buyout of the zero bond, but they had quite the amount of real estate. I hope to maybe never go to zero bond, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, I don't know, man. It's pretty sick. I mean, you know, I'll go to the Algonquin, I'll go to the Metropolitan, like, you know, give me the a Algonquin? real club, this Nafu-Rashay shit, like, is, like, not for me. Dorothy Parker? You're going to the fucking Algonquin? You're, That's a hotel, there's a Algonquin, Algonquin club, it's, it's, the, the club is different than the, than the okay. hotel, darling. Okay, thank, thank God. <laughs> um, you know, uh, University Club, obviously, you know, uh, you know probably University not the New York club. Athletic Club. Any of these, any of these clubs that have been, you know, founded since, say, 1950, I'm not sure if I'm that interested in them. <laughs> Well, that Although obviously they have part. a more open policy on religion, race, and gender than, than probably some of those older clubs uh, have at least historically had in the past. Quite possibly. Is um, there a Duke well, Club in New York City? Why don't we go to the there, Duke Club? There isn't. There's a long, tangled history about why there isn't. But essentially, we unfortunately have to share with Penn. So the Duke is Duke alums get to join the Penn Club, which obviously I did not join because fuck Penn. Yeah, I mean, come on now. Yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> like, what, like, what a disaster. Um, but one of the Dukes, I like the pen so minor and Ivy, they even need to share their club. I know. It's just pathetic all around. Everything about it is so pathetic. I went to a talk at the club once, and it's, like, shitty, too. It's like, Can we start beef just with Pennsylvania in general and Philadelphia in specific? I mean, Philly's got its, its, its you know, cool moments. We had a fun time there a few years ago. Most of that state blows. Oh, that's obviously. true. That's true. We had a great sandwich. We had a great sandwich for the sandwiches <laughs> alone. All right. I go, I'll find <laughs> a different city to beef yeah. with. <laughs> Ithaca, you're next. Ithaca. Jesus um, Christ. And what yeah. else? You did, you did some other stuff this week. Did you go to the Charles Gaines uh, party by the Hausa and the Gallery? I didn't go to the, the party, which was last night. It was too much going on last night. I did stop by the show. It was looking, looking quite, quite impressive. Big fan of Charles Gaines. Uh, Wednesday night went to the opening of David Ostrovsky at uh, the wonderful Ramekin Gallery on the Lurie side. Hell of a show, Benjamin. You got to check it out. It's it's pretty pretty. You know, that's gnarly. interesting to me. A, a name from the past who was like mm-hmm. obviously kind of got caught up uh, in the zombie formalism movement, uh, so to speak, or the market moment, uh, and, mm-hmm. and his stuff was trading for a lot. I haven't heard a lot from him or what he's been making recently. So interesting to see that it is a show like a very hip, uh, cool gallery like Ramekin. I think that it wasn't entirely fair to lump him in with the zombie formalists back in the day. I think he was doing something different, more interesting, like kind of more difficult. Um, and in the ensuing years, you know, he's sort of taken a lot of time to work slowly. He started working with the Spruthmongers Gallery in Berlin, which I think is quite interesting pairing. Listen, I, and, I never said uh, it was fair. Since when has since no, when this game of life ever been fair? No, no, very, very true. Um, but I think the show bangs, um, and then there was a great dinner hosted by Ramekin, uh, head honcho Mike Egan at our favorite little French cafe, Lucienne, which is quite, quite lovely. Your favorite little French cafe, <laughs> to be clear. Right. Um. The royal way. hmm Uh, wonderful evening. Again, stumbled home afterward. Quite nice. Yeah. I love to what, hear what it. You and, you know, week? obviously, uh, that was it, man. Like, I hung out with my kids. Yeah, that's good. That's great. W- worked out. Jim, Jim, 
tan laundry. Expand on do my own laundry. I can take it you're not tan. going to the dinner for Nino Meyer tonight? No. Do we have to talk about Friday openings? No, but I but congr- I saw actually bumped into Nino at uh at Jonas's opening. Like uh congratulations to them opening what I'm sure is a beautiful space with a I'm excited a, to see this space. Incredible show, no doubt. Full San Ambrose buyout, buddy. P- pretty good look. Not so bad, not so bad. So listen, so I'm I'm rolling to London in a couple weeks. Where should I get my restaurant reservation? I know uh, some some other more famous and successful podcast hosts that are over there hit up St. John's and brought mm-hmm. uh i'm thinking about the new uh ivan emmanuel restaurant They're like that's the move right i think so i mean i drank at the pub downstairs which was quite lovely and you know, but i know that the restaurant upstairs is really really crazy it's got that insane review in the, in the guardian was it telegraph do you remember yeah, 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 about how how great it is, but expensive. Also, you know, I haven't been to River Cafe in years. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, I should make a resi and, and uh, confirm that the Paris Carstead Gallery will be paying for it. Our other podcast competition at the River Cafe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't, she, she, that's actually the one I'm jealous of, though. <laughs> she gets a real guess. Although, uh, uh, a friend of the pod, whether uh, uh, Izzy Wood, I think, appeared live last night in London mm-hmm. uh, with another podcast. Is that true, or am uh, I making that up? I, I think she was on the How Long On podcast last night. I would have loved to be in attendance. We're both fans of Izzy Wood. That would have been fun. I'm I glad be- they got her on the podcast. I bet you that was super fun. I bet yeah. you that's super fun. It's, um, it's just crazy how much was going on transatlantically. You know, Izzy Wood on How Long Gone, Jonas opening, Brent and, and Nomi in Brooklyn. Crazy. Yeah, Gold I mean, opening. and presumably she Los Angeles on. is still there. I'm not sure what they're doing in LA. I think they just kind of like they close down until it's freeze week, open up, and then close down again. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little quiet over there for now. But hey, a few weeks um, we'll be you over know, there. But I mean, not to be too New York specific, I think there was also a an art fair that opened maybe in Brussels the other night. Really? Yeah, I, mean, I got I got some I got some PDFs I didn't open. Oh my lord, Daisy, was there was there a, is there is there an art fair in, in Brussels right now? Geneva Switzerland. Geneva, Switzerland. Sorry. Oh, great, Geneva. Love that, love that watch town. <laughs> yeah, that's a sexy city, let me tell you. <laughs> Jesus. Make Zurich look hopping. Oh my god. It really, it's really the sleeviest town I've ever been in. It's crazy. Um, but before we wrap it up in good news, I did make my Basel Hotel resi, did you? Let's go. Uh, no, not yet. Yeah, you should do that, man. I know you I should do that. Um, all right. I think, you know, enough about blathering. I think uh, Ralph ran kind of long. It's a nice 40 minute podcast. I think he's super smart. I haven't actually listened to it yet or edited it. Hopefully, the audio quality is uh, better than usual. Um, great but if room. not, I think his, his wit and his, his wit and chit chat, I think, is totally worth it. So that's going to come up right after, after this. this. Welcome back to Nota Bene. Benjamin, we are joined by. A really esteemed guest this week. I'm, I'm quite excited to have him in the pod lab in Union Square. Ralph DeLuca, welcome to Nota Bennett. What's going on, Ralph? How are you, man? Doing good. Thanks for having me on. I've been a big fan of the podcast since you guys started. Well, you're one of my favorite people to get seated next to at a boring art dinner because like, you just are a no-bullshit guy, and I think you're a perfect... I think you're going to be a great guest on the pod. I think we actually referenced that dinner after the fact a few months ago. Benjamin, you you were not pleased with this dinner, but you were very happy that Ralph was at our table. I was not pleased with the dinner. Yeah, I was the not seating pleased with wasn't the... great. We didn't get great seating, but, but couple... we had fun because we were just hanging out. You know, a couple drinks in, I I, I don't take it serious. I, to me, I think art is the silliest thing in the world, as important as it could be, where serious money changes hands. You got to have fun. Yeah, have fun. and it doesn't matter where you're seated at dinner, but you know, thankfully we're sitting next to each other. You are a collector. You're a uh, a great art advisor. Um, but you started not in the world of fine art primarily. Uh, you come from the world of of cinema ephemera, uh, movie posters, right? Is that how you first began interested in visual culture? Like, tell yeah, me your how story. Did, how did you get started? You grew up in New Jersey. I know grew that up much. in New Jersey, blue collar Italian family. No, no, they had no interest in art or collecting. And I was like the weird little kid, always loved to collect something. Coins, stamps, baseball cards, comic books. I used to buy two of the same action figure and leave one in the box. Like I was like, a, and had the pegboard in my room and had them all like it looked like a little toy store in my room. And I always responded to visual things, and loved movies, loved cartoons, but I loved old movies. I liked Abbott and Costello. I loved the old horror movies. I loved the Marx Brothers, Chaplin, Keaton. And this is when I was eight, ten years old. I'd watch them with my grandfather and my father, and was just always into them. And around. 1989, I was 13 years old. Two interesting things happened. I was at uh, my cousin's house. He had a tarot card deck. Wasn't interested in the tarot cards. I was obsessed with the art. I said, who is this? It was Salvador Dali. No clue who Salvador Dali was. No clue about any of this. And I was really into the art. Um, So I started, I went to the library, got some books on him. And that year um, in May was my birthday. I think it was the year Salvador Dali died, actually. He was in the news a lot. 
uh, that year in 89, I wound up buying, I took my birthday money, went to a little gallery in Morristown, New Jersey, and bought a lithograph um, of, from the Divine Comedy. And I remember it was like all these demons having an orgy, and who knows if it was real or not. I still have it because it's like important to my, to my pathology as a collector. And I remember bringing it home. My father's like, what did you buy with your birthday money? I'm like, this. And he just looked at me. He was like, what the fuck's wrong with you? What is this? (laughs) (laughs) So that happened. And that same year was, uh, I think it was 89. I'm pretty sure it was 89. um, Roger Rabbit and Batman came out. Two Two iconic fucking films. Two iconic movies. And I said, you know what? I went to the theater and I just looked at the Batman shield. I always loved Batman. Roger Rabbit I thought was amazing. It had all the old cartoons. I wanted to have posters from those two movies. So I couldn't find a poster. I I think a theater owner gave me them and I I just like tacked them on my wall where I didn't put the holes in them, but I kind of like, you know, I had these, I had the the push pins like holding the paper and I just looked at them. I love these. So I was really like my visual language was developing and I was like, it would be really cool to buy older posters. And I was like, I love Frankenstein. I love Dracula. And at that time, Frankenstein, I noticed there was a magazine called Movie Collector's World, and I went to the newsstand, got it. Sold for like $190,000. I was like, okay, this is, already a, this is already a thing. These things are already selling for a lot of money. So I just started to learn more um, and would buy newer posters. I'd, if I had money saved up, I'd buy like a poster from like the producers or old, uh, you know, old comedies I liked from the 70s, Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder, or whatever, Woody Allen at the time, pre- <laughs> pre uh, <laughs> scandal, uh, have to have to note that, and I just got really obsessed with studying them and, and loving the movies. These are all movies I saw, and as I went out into the world, I was in Wall Street after you know after I went to finish school, and as I made money, I didn't really want to own anything except stuff. I didn't care about like you know I didn't invest in a lot of stocks. I didn't care about travel or buying fancy clothes. I wanted to own things, and so I started really getting immersed in the world of old movie posters learning about all the old posters from old countries, and then literally have a library. I bought every back auction catalog I could find and would just call everybody 20 years worth of back issues of the magazines, and I literally would cut out the the ads and be like, oh, Benjamin, you had an ad in Movie Collector's World in 1987. Do you still Are you still in the hobby? And you would have stuff, and you would teach me what you had, and I would be able to buy some stuff from you. And you know, lo and behold, after I built such a big collection – I realized I was getting offered things I already had, but I could actually sell them to new, you know, to newer collectors I met, make a profit, and could do that to build my collection. Amazing, amazing. Wow. Did you have like a, through that process? Did you like ever have like a mentor in that, like, or was it really just totally self-directed? No, I would go. There were older dealers um, and collectors that I would make friends with. Um, and learn from them. Tell me the stories. How did you get this? How many copies are known of this? Who had the best collection? What were the great auctions? So I, I would, I would, I was like going. I was on the phone all day. I was just talking to people. I was going to every every poster, you know, or memorabilia show, every flea market, every anything I could, you know, read every magazine. So I would kind of like, kind of like I do now. We're going to emerging art openings. Yeah, a true obsessive. And when when were you able to uh, ditch the day job and make that uh, that hobby, that passion, your full time uh, life? I so I kind of left Wall Street in 1999. I was totally burnt out. I got killed in the internet bubble. Right. Um, you know, left intact barely. And then I was selling insurance and doing some financial planning, which was miserable. I'm sitting at a coffee table talking about when you die, what your family's going to get. It wasn't me, although I'm a good salesman. I hated it. Selling overpriced annuities. Yes, and it, I didn't like it. And at no, I would do that during the day. And at night, I would buy and sell old movie posters and like, you know, figure out I, I was finding stuff from people that some people I haven't talked to in 20, 30 years because I was like doing the research and, you know, advertising in little places and, and cold calling people who had collections. And I remember one month, this was probably around 2000. I, um, I think I made like 10 or 12,000 that month selling insurance and I made like 50,000 buying and selling posters. So I said, I, I hate what I'm doing during the day. Imagine if I was doing this during the day too. And it kind of just snowballed. And I just lived very frugally and put everything I made back into inventory, back into my collection. And then I found other markets that I can kind of recontextualize, um, namely photography. I noticed at a movie poster convention or a collectible, you know, whatever, a dealer, they would have a great George Harrell print of Marlena Dietrich from the 30s, and they charged $200 for it. That same exact print would would sell in Soho or one of these other galleries with a $25 asset-free mat around it for $3,500. Arbitrage, baby. It was arbitrage. It was a total arbitrage. So I started buying 
all those I could find from the movie poster deals from the collectors. And I was the top payer. I was paying retail. But then I was recontextualizing them, consigning them to galleries, putting them in different auctions until I cleaned kind of everyone out. And then I started, I actually sat down with media brokers who were buying and selling newspapers and magazines. And, I, and some of them were very old. And I said, listen, I had a meeting with me. I think I was all of 23, 24. These two guys look like they came from the Mayflower in suits. And I'm sitting there looking out, I look like a bookie sitting with them, like a young kid. I said, listen, I know I set the meeting with you. I don't want to buy um, a newspaper or magazine. I said, every newspaper or magazine you have has a photo morgue, which was the photo archive. It's either thrown out or thrown in the deal. I would like you to separate that asset. Spent a few hours with them describing it. No one had did, thought to do this at the time. I don't know why. I don't think I'm that smart, but it was just an interesting idea. And first deal I bought was 10,000 pictures. I think I paid 50,000 for it and made like 20 times my money. And I bought five or six big deals like that and, and just kind of roll the money and all the money I put into stuff. I put into movie posters. I built, and today, to this day, I have one of the better collections in the world and would just buy everything great at auction, privately, buy out collections and would buy a lot of photography. And then I started collecting music posters and concert posters. I kind of did the same thing. I would track down the old concert promoters and buy out their inventory. I'd call old musicians and be like, hey, you were with the Rolling Stones in a show in North Carolina in 67, whatever, you know, making up this, but like that type of thing. Do you have the posters when you were with them? Oh yeah, I do. And I would buy stuff like that. Every day I'm hustling. Wow. Every day I love I, that's an incredible story. You just, you know, kind of popular the visual remnants of popular culture. You kind of identified what was important and alternative ways to access it, and you know, and figure out what was valuable. Especially as boomers were getting older, I would think that a lot of those things, you know, were rapidly increasing in value. They were increasing in value. They were important. And I always had a good ability to look at something as culturally important, and also I believe a good investment, a good financial asset. And I loved it. If I, didn't have, if I don't have passion with something, I'm terrible at it. I was terrible in school. On history, I was an A student. Everything else, I was a C student because I hated school. I hated, I, like I knew I didn't need most of what they were teaching. Um, but with, with stuff like this, I just knew it. I got it. So I really understood. And then I started learning from buying these photo archives. I had a lot of you know, photographs that were non-entertainment um, related by people like Ouija, who to this day mm -hmm. I have about 165 Ouija's in my Amazing. collection. Wow. Love Ouija. The original Pat, man. So there were Ouija's in these photo morgues that you were buying? Yeah, a couple I bought a couple big collections in New York and wow. they had Ouija because wow. Ouija was he was a staff, you know, he was a police right. photographer. Mm -hmm. And and then I would I would trade, I would build interesting themed collections, you know, would trade a collection based on smoking or based on um, you know, New York City or different cities or you know, uh, a re real crime. And, and would anyone ever hire you for to, to specifically kind of set them up with a collection? Like, oh, I'm interested in this. Like, was was that part From of the business? From meeting or? that, I started, you know, this was, you know, you're talking around now 2001. I actually started acting as an advisor where I said, listen, I can get you these things. I could build a collection. Um, it was a lower price point, so I think I was marking it up 20%. But always, I always like to be transparent. You know, I just say, here's, here's, I could buy this, you know, for a thousand bucks. I'm happy to make 200 bucks. You know, for these photos, and you know, we'll keep buying. And you could buy directly from the dealer. I, you know, I always, I always felt comfortable in my ability to help someone. So I don't, I never felt the need to shield the client from the from the seller. Yeah, which as we know is actually the best way to do it because that gives them so much more confidence in you, uh, even in that world. Right? To me, you know, and this translates to collectibles. It translates to art. I like my clients to know everything because the smarter they are, the easier our job is. Yeah. I always, I yeah. fundamentally, I mean, we'll get to it, but then when you push them on something, they know that it's coming from a genuine place. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think that's a really important way to set up the relationship. We'll, we'll get to all that. But so at what point in your, in your collecting and you're like, uh, you know, somewhat obsessive and I would bet not anal, but very specific understanding of things. When did you start to get interested in unique works of? of art of, of painting. come from the photography was it just like well, the next photography step? was a jump and then i went into russian constructivist which i don't know if you remember i had that collection up of all the russian constructivist posters all the Rachenkos. that got me getting immersed into graphic design that wasn't entertainment related chick hold swedish typography german typographical stuff um you know the very avant-garde i got into that had a meryl berman was a great great collector acted like a mentor he, you know a lot of his collections in moma he's done a ton of books and exhibits one of the best collections of graphic design in the world meeting him and then I would buy illustration art. I started buying original paintings that were used to make movie posters. Mm -hmm. um, started collecting crumb because I was into comics. I had comic art. Still have a big collection of crumb. Very cool. Yeah, so I, from that, but I always loved art. Now, I was buying art books. 
I remember I had a Picasso book and it was like all the Gans family Picassos. And I would put post-it notes to the ones I wanted to buy one day. Still never bought one, but <laughs> you, you still have the book with the post-it still notes. Still have the book. I, yeah, I'm, to there's me, still I'm, time. There's still, there's still time. There's still time. They don't, they don't come up that often anymore, and I kind of really can't afford them. But yeah. I would always art was always. I studied surrealism. I loved um, German expressionism, and I would look at contemporary art. And I got really into looking at art. I was buying older stuff, and I did a show. Um, one of my good friends and celebrity clients, uh, who I started with his film poster collection back in 2001, introduced me to his art dealer, who was Tony Shafrazi. So I wow. met Tony around 2003, 2004. Friend of the pod, Tony. Yeah, I mean, a great, great American hero. Yeah, Tony's the best. I, you know, we talked. He loved movies. He loved art. And one day we're talking. I eventually did a Russian constructivist poster show in his gallery, one of the last shows he did at his gallery in Chelsea, the last, second to the last. It was a great show. We had a really big turnout. A bunch of people came. And before that, when we were talking, I was giving him ideas. He looked at me, and I'll never forget this. He said to me, you have a brilliant eye. I love your mind. You have great taste. Everything you do is fucking dead. Why don't you buy something alive? Buy today. Buy, buy your current. Buy your, you know, buy your contemporaries. Look at art. And it really stuck with me. I was like, everything I own is dead. It's old. So from there, he took me around. And Hiroko Inoda, who ran his gallery, who's still yeah. one of my closest friends, she would take me around the galleries and I would look at the time. It would be, you know, Joe Bradley or Jonas. Well, this is, you know, now this is going back to like 2008, 2010. Mm -hmm. um, I really started looking, bought a few things. And then I went through a few, um, you know, a few people who, quote unquote, called themselves advisors who were very dishonest. And I said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for my education either making terrible mistakes or I'm going to pay a good advisor 10%, which is way better because it's also going to give me an education access. So I don't know. I guess it was around 2009, 10, after going to a few people who said they were advisors who really, you know, really was a loosely used term and kind of took advantage <laughs> of me. me I know. <laughs> I've never been taken advantage of, but I just yeah, I see well, them out there. I see them out there in the world. And oh, I, me fucking nuts. I would say, you know, the first half a million plus I spent on art, I got taken advantage of, which is fine. I wasn't buying for the right reasons. I was just excited. I was on Spilkus and, you know, I was buying more with my ears than my eyes, which is I never done before because I was always, always about what with my eyes and my heart. I was Facebook friends with this guy who was posting great art and all his meals. And I wrote him and I said, I see you're an art advisor. I like what you post. Here's a reference. I just bought an Arbus Twins for my collection, which I own. Out of auction, you could check me out because I know you're a serious guy. Two days later, he called me. He goes, I'll meet you for coffee. That was Todd Levin, who became my advisor, one wow. of my best friends, mentors. Wow. Still to this day, I talk to him every day. And, you know, we just, we just got along and he really, you know, really helped me um, build my whole collection. I mean, Todd's an interesting guy and I can see a lot of parallels and that you're both I mean, there's a lot of differences, but a lot of problems that you both like to really dig down, do the research. I mean, he mm -hmm. knows his shit. He knows from A to Z, anything he's looking at, he needs to know the entire story. Yeah, he and knows I feel more like you're, you're on the, the same subject way. of art of anyone I've ever talked to. And he was very, yeah, he did, uh, dived deep. He also loved graphic design, posters, film, watches. We had a lot of Mid-century design. Mid-century design. You know, you know, he owns a great Frank Lloyd Wright house now. And he really just, you know, really took me under his wing probably by far his poorest client and took up the most of his time, but we just got along. I mean, uh, yeah, he spent Christmas at my house this year. Yeah, like, he I'm, needs friends. It's good. Yeah, it's good. So he became a good friend. And, you know, after I was still, you know, advising people in posters really at the time, and what started to happen is I started collecting art and buying less posters, so I wasn't competing with my clients, which I think is a big conflict. It's really hard when a client's saying, oh, I really want this Citizen Kane style B. How could I find it? And it's like, oh, I have one on my wall, but I don't want to tell you I have one on my wall. <laughs> so I say collecting art was a really good break away from that. And then about a year or two, three after collecting art, um, I really picked it up. I got into it. Some of my clients are like, listen, we got screwed by our advisor. We got screwed. We're, we're, we're not buying good stuff. We're getting, you know, you know, they thought they were buying primary, but they were buying secondary because the advisor Ooh. invoiced, was invoiced to their company. They re-invoiced them. I mean, that's a whole bunch of stories. So they said, would you be my advisor? And I said, I'm not ready yet. And um, actually, this was Sylvester Stallone. I can say it. He knows the story. And I was like, I'm not ready yet. Let me learn a little bit more. I was friends with him, you know, you know, through my other clients and stuff. And after a few years of um, more of collecting, Todd sat me down. And he says, you're ready. I'm going to mentor you. I'll, I'll help. I'll call the gallery saying you're advising now too. 
so to to let them know that I'm on board with this and sat me down, told me how he runs his business, which is completely transparent, kind of like below the radar. And from there, my clients are like, listen, we trust what you did with us in posters. We trust what you did in photography and entertainment memorabilia and movie and music stuff. So we want you to help in art. So I already had good relationships with the galleries because, you know, I never burned a bridge. I mean, I, I, you know, people knew they could trust me. I didn't flip. I didn't do anything shady. Uh, I was very outspoken. I realized, you know, you could say whatever the fuck you want if you don't do anything wrong. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's a great rule for life. Right? Yeah, it's a really good rule for life. I mean, there's, I, I can hold my head up high saying there's no one around that could say I did them wrong in this. Yeah, but that, that gives you the permission to be able to say whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then I still, I slowly started advising and get, you know, getting people access to stuff and the, you know, a couple of galleries, you know, really supportive. You know, Spruth Mager is very supportive. Marianne Boski, very supportive. Um, my friend Robert Goff at Zwerner, really helpful. Got me some great things for really good clients. And that's just developed. And, you know, from that, I don't go looking for clients. I kind of just, um, everything comes in referral. I only want to work with a client I want to break bread with. That's a really big thing to me. Great rules. Really. The no assholes rule. Yes. The no assholes rule is a big... Yeah, and it's like, I get calls all the time. Hey, if you can get me this XYZ painting, I'll give you a commission. I said, well, thank you. I'm not a runner. I build collections. I don't want to work with one person, like, you know, for for one transaction. I want to help you build a collection. If I'm bringing you to a gallery, it's my livelihood, my word on the line, not only for access for my own collection, but also how I make a living, my access for my clients. I'm not going to do a one-off. I, I couldn't say it better myself. I feel like I'm talking to a mirror, but a more, uh, uh, you know. A little taller mirror. A little taller. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say more eloquent, but you know. <laughs> I'm not eloquent. I'm taller. I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> few aren't, my friend. Few aren't. Um, and so around how many clients do you work with now, would you say? Ballpark. You know, I would say between eight and ten. And some years, some people are active. Some years, people aren't. Um, and, you know, I don't want to, I'm working on a potential few new more, you know, clients that are collecting different things. It's hard to get everyone, you know, if everyone wants the same thing. So I like when people collect different things. Yep. I don't want a ton of clients. I don't have, I don't want to start, I don't want to start getting offices and employees, although I do need an assistant, but like, I don't want to have an enterprise. I mm. like keeping my business very bootstrapped. I live very below my means. My clients know I'm not recommending, hey, you buy this painting because I need to pay the rent. I need to pay my mortgage. I need to pay my credit card debt. I don't have any debt. I'm, I'm very... Well, I I like mean, that's that. something we were talking about earlier, though. When you're, when you're totally transparent, uh, then when you really are pushing something, they know it's not to make the mortgage payment or the credit card payment. They know it's because you believe it's the right thing for them at that moment uh, and something they need to have. We've talked about this before. The one, the one key mistake I see people who advise make, you can't live like your clients. Your clients, if your clients are super wealthy people, which most people who buy art at the level we sell art, advise on art, they're very wealthy. I don't live like my clients. I'm very happy to go to my client's yacht on his plane to this one's $100 million beach house. And I'm happy to come home to my, you know, my little house, my apartment, whatever. Like, I, I'm not trying to get that. That's really, really smart. And it's something that, that isn't said that often, I feel like. Yeah, I know. mean, it's not said often enough. You can't, it, that's how you get into trouble. You get yourself inside out if you start trying to live like your client's lifestyle. Oh, and I see people do it chartering planes, staying in two, $3,000 a night hotel rooms for a month because their clients are staying there. You know, your client's worth $10 billion. That they can do that. I mean, that's that's an Inigo Philbrick story, you know, or part of it is, yeah. you know, he's trying to live a lifestyle that was similar to the people that he was selling art to, and it's just unsustainable. You're going to end up uh, having to do something shady. You know, I met him once for 10 minutes. I thought he radiated sleaze. He tried to sell me stuff. I said, <laughs> I know it. This is not my type of guy. Um, I also don't, as, as we talked about before the podcast started, my whole business is pretty much buying primary. I don't really do secondary. I don't sell it to my clients. I um, certainly... I think it's me personally. I'm not judging anyone else. I feel slimy dealing in uh, secondary market art of some of these emerging artists, especially behind the backs of the artists who are usually right. my friend or the gallerists who are always my friend. I, I just I kind of avoid that. Well, if you've been around as long as you and I, uh, if not longer, you realize that most of these things that are, have a very hot secondary market from a younger artist. It's not sustainable. You're going to end up hurting their market by trading. And honestly, you can probably buy it in a day sale in four years for pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, um, 
I see I see it all the time. Like we were talking about Ellie Rhines, you know, fifty six Henry's mm-hmm. gallery, I, one of the galleries I really like. You know, I buy from her a couple artists in the program. That's like I'm Joe Messer, work I love. I own a few myself. I play some with clients. Yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine behind Ellie or Joe's back, who I consider both from good friends, someone offering me a work and trying to flip it or it's just it's icky to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, shut me down if this is not something I think it's pretty pu- public but you work with a corporate client in the state of Nevada right I want to yeah. know what that experience is like so I work with uh, MGM Resorts mm-hmm. um, and I got there because I lived in Vegas there's there's only uh, really two advisors in Vegas so it kind of was like a little bit of the wild west I felt like that's why the mob went out there it's like I didn't realize I went out there for that but I it was, an, to, it was an open town man it was an open yep. town and it was a weird story I want the house I own used to be uh, Betty Grable's house the actress mm-hmm. And it was a mid-century house. I bought it on a weekend whim. I've paid more for paintings than I paid for this house and then redid it and got really into it. And it was a cool place to stay and have my residency there. Um, and then, yeah, I got introduced quickly, kind of tried to figure out the, the lack of art scene there, the couple people that cared. I, I met the MGM and they're like, we were interested in getting stuff for our corporate collection. So I was like, here's, here's what I think your collection's good at. Here's what it's bad at. And I said, I could help you. Your collection's basically living or dead, all straight white men. It's it's really boring, and this is not today. Like we need to bring some, we need to bring you know people of color, BIPOC people, LGBT, more women artists. You need to like this collection is not relevant uh, mm-hmm. the way it could be. And so we organized a great sale of um, a bunch of Picassos that they owned, yep. which was a really fun event. As we've discussed in the podcast, I wish we could have gone. Uh, I wish you guys were there. It was a really fun. I it had some didn't... clients come. I know. It was fun. And then from that, we just started buying. You know, we bought uh, really great Rashid. We bought uh, Derek Adams. We bought, uh, you know, Jonathan Lyndon Chase. We did a bunch of different, um, bunch of different really good artists. Svenja Denninger, um, Gada Amer. Like, there's, you know, we bought a bunch of artists. So it's been really fun. The, the, the frustrating part about dealing with any corporate client is you're dealing with a public company. It's a board. Mm-hmm. So you have to tell the gallerist, hey, I would like to offer this to MGM for one of their, you know, 30 hotels across the world. Um, but it might take a few months. So, right. you know, if you're okay with that, I'm gonna, it's not going to happen quick. It's got to be presented. It's got to be voted on. Even smaller purchases. It's not about the size. So that's, that's different where, you know, with, with a client, I'll call them like, hey, this is great. You know, 500 people want it. You, do you like this? I'm, if you don't buy it, I want to buy it. Like, that's, that, that, you know, that's easy. With a corporate client, I don't. I'm sure you've worked with corporate clients before. Like it's it's a lot. It's a lot slower of a burn, and the galleries have to understand. No, that. no, I've never done it. I oh, you never done it? Well, for family offices, but it's generally one person has the ability to pull the trigger. Yeah, this is a whole. MGM is a whole board. Uh, they're great to I work really with. Imagine. The, the guy Ari who runs it's great. Loves art, uh, and I think it's really good because it's not just Las Vegas. They're they're opening because they have casinos all over the country. They're opening up mm-hmm. all over the world, and think about it. What's a great captured audience to go look at a painting by an emerging artist? People with money. They're looking at it. They're there spending money. They're, you know, Vegas itself gets a million tourists a week. Yeah, and I think artists, uh, galleries obviously, but I think artists must love the notion of not just living in some guy's house, but something that, that people can actually see. Like, yeah, you know, that and, isn't and stuck they, in a museum either. That has like, you know, that is part of people's kind of not daily life, but like life. Yeah, it, it fits in great. And like, you know, Stefania Bordolami just did a show in Vegas. Really well received. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, Jonas was in the show, and you know, there's a lot of a uh, lot of people went out for it. A lot of I couldn't. I had to be. I, I, had to I be also York. couldn't go, but um, I really but, wanted to. No, but it, I, I've I've heard nothing but good things. Stefania was super happy. You know, it's it's a kind of a, there's a, there's an energy in Vegas. Uh, it'll never be New York. It'll never be L.A. It'll never be Chicago or San Francisco. I wish there was a museum there. There's been a bunch of attempts to try, and hopefully that's right. not done. Mm-hmm. But it's really, um, it was, it was an interesting. Yeah, I mean, place. some some great people have tried. Like like really committed people have tried. Very it just seems to be, you know, it's um, it's it's not that kind of a philanthropic city. Culture, unfortunately, in Las Vegas isn't valued the way it is in New York or L.A. or San Francisco, Chicago. Um, so it's a little bit harder to support the arts there. That's what I've noticed. I mean, not the performing arts, man. If you want a residency, that's the spot oh, to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you want a residency, different. But, but like actual fine arts, sculpture, painting, photography, it's 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 the only top um, 30 city in the U.S. that doesn't have a major contemporary art museum, mm-hmm. which is sad. It, I mean, it should change. I mean, I, I know a lot of people have tried, and I think that they continue will, you know, right? I think, I don't know, I don't think that's done, and I do think they will have one one day. Um, we have a friend who's tried very hard. And I don't think she's done. 
No, no. Then you know, I wouldn't put anything past you know. She's a force of nature. Mm. She's a force um, of nature. Now, I just wanted to wonder: do, do you see any parallels or any key differences in in how the market for contemporary artworks and the market for movie posters? Obviously, one is old by dead makers and mostly unnamed makers. But like, what are the similarities and key differences between the two markets that you're involved there, in? There's you know, there's a lot of differences. So the one difference is you have a poster for sale. You're charging twenty thousand for it. You'll sell it to anyone. You go into a gallery and be like, oh, that, how much is it? 20000 I'll buy it. They're like, who the fuck are you? What else do you own? Do you, are you on the, any museum boards? Are you on this? Are you on that? Do you have an advisor? Who else in your collection? What are the galleries? You don't have there's that. There's a gatekeeping and a creation. Yeah, kind no of a false scarcity. So you don't have that. Um, you could actually just actually buy something. You're dealing with something that's very rare that, you know, even though movie posters were productive art, they were never meant to be collected. They were meant to, a poster is a productive art. It's meant to advertise a film, a concert, a political idea, a travel destination, a book, a product, whatever. They were put up, they were used, they were thrown out. Movie posters were made on shitty pulp paper. They were rented to theaters. And especially before World War II, there was, I think, 14 poster exchanges in this country that rented them out. Theaters put a deposit, almost like the old water cooler bottles. They'd go back to the poster exchanges. 80% of the poster exchanges during World War II were emptied for the paper drives. So 80% of all the movie posters prior to World War II were recycled. Um, so they so all the pre-code stuff, like all... Very rare. The only stuff was... The cup, there were a couple small exchanges in like, you know, East Your Bumblefuck, wherever, that they didn't go empty. Or theater owners didn't return the posters. Projectionists took them home. Studio execs had them. Wow. So you're talking very rare. So... That's the hardest thing, because if you want a Rashid Johnson painting, a Jonas Wood painting, you know, fill in the blank of the artist, eventually you'll get one. Tell me, yeah, I want Animal Crackers with the Marx Brothers. There's one copy in the world, and the guy does not want to sell it. Man, have I tried. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so that you're dealing with that difference. Theoretically, what would a poster like that trade for? We're talking seven digits? That poster, I'd happily pay 100000 for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay. still, so yeah. still, quote unquote, reasonable. Yeah, the only I mean. seven figure movie posters are um, Metropolis, which I've handled. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about a million and a half, two million dollar uh, poster. Very major, you know, uh, 1927 German. Fritz Lang. Yeah, yeah Fritz I mean, Lang. important I'm, film. Yeah. I could, five, I could do a rewatch of that. Actually, that's a great film. Five copies in the world. Two were in MoMA. One is in the um, Cinematheque Francaise, and there was two in private hands. I've handled both of those. And um, there's a three sheet for King Kong on the Empire State Building, which is. Nearing a million bucks, I have a copy of my collection. So sick. Yeah, that's, that's, so that's really great. And there's a, a six sheet, which is a billboard, seven feet by seven feet of King Kong. Uh, and then the mummy, which is the uh, last one that came up. I offered 800000 and the guy said no. Incredible. Incredible. So, yeah, those are, everything else is pretty much, you know, 10000 to about 300000 now into the fun stuff we get to kvetch. Uh, pet peeves about the contemporary <laughs> art world like today, like right now is like how things are going. Anything that's just driving you, know, you nuts? Top of your head, just, uh, you know. Well, there's this thing, and we've talked about this <laughs> numerous times. They call it BOGO, which stands for buy one, get one. Um, it's this, I don't even call it, it's a financial instrument. It's an arbitrage where you want an emer- It's mostly for, for smaller to, uh, emerging artists. Yeah, it could be up to big artists. I guess some of, some of the artists now to sell for seven figures, they'll do that with. They want you to buy one for a museum to be able to get one for yourself. So you have to technically buy two to get one. So it's changing your cost basis, basically. It changes your cost basis. The problem I have with it is it's several problems. And I love museums. If a museum wants an artwork and the curators are involved and say, we want this exact painting, can you help us fundraise for it? That's a different thing. I've been a trustee of museums. I've donated to museums. I've raised money from them. I've had clients give things. This is a different thing. This is some kind of weird financial instrument where the client's not being sold a work of art. You're being, say... Buy Tom Smith. I'm not going to use an artist's name, but like say Tom Smith's paintings are 40000 primary. They're 200000 at auction. You buy two of them, you're spending 80000 You're giving one to a museum. You're getting a $40,000 write-off, getting a little of that back. So now maybe you're into the painting for sixty five, and it's 200000 at auction. Now, what, it's not building any interest to the, to the, to, in the client's mind about the artwork, the artist, caring about the gallery. Or caring about the institution. So you're not building a steward for the gallery, the artist, or the institution. You're selling them on a financial asset. I think it's bullshit. Because what happens is everybody, every artist in the world, those secondary prices um, come down. So what happens when that $200,000 secondary price comes down to at primary, where it should be, sometimes it could be a little bit below, you know, emerging art should be anywhere between 10 and 20% above or below primary. Mm-hmm. Now, the, now the, the collector feels like a schmuck. 
He's mad at the advisor if he has one. He doesn't like the gallery. You know, these poor, the poor young artists are like, oh, their career is over. Like, the, the, the price is one yeah, all the way no, down. Yeah, no, no, no one will buy it. Yeah, no one will buy it. It's like, you know, it's a shame. And I, and I think it's being poorly sold. It's usually the museum is being forced to take something they don't want. Right. Yeah. So the curators aren't really happy. And now they have it. to pay for the care and feeding of this thing. They have to pay for, the, pay for that. And if, if the artist is lucky, if the artist is lucky, that painting will get one month of wall time every 20, 30 years. Mm. So I don't know what it's doing. What it's become is it's become an interesting loophole for undesirables, people who, um, and whatever word you want to use, people who normally wouldn't get primary access like some of our clients. Uh, because maybe they flip, maybe they, you know, they don't have a, the, the best represent, uh, rep, um, reputation. This is a way for the art dealer to make sure the client is paying more for the painting technically and they're putting one in a museum. So if they flip, at least... But also, it sort of, in my mind, also incentivizes or makes flipping okay. So they're like, well, I bought a book in a museum. Yeah. You're not selling, this is a painting by this artist. He or she is really important. You know, you want to own it. So these galleries or that do this, a lot of the people on the other end, one ends up in a small regional museum, never to see the light of day. And the other end's in the hand of someone you wouldn't really want to own the painting if they didn't do this. I don't know. Long term, I've never seen it work. Um, I think it's great if an institution wants to work by an emerging artist. And there's been times where galleries came to me and said, hey, XYZ artist, you know, the Met, MoMA, you know, a major real museum, like really wants this particular painting. The curators came down and looked. The painting's 50000 Will you or any of your clients help give some money to help them get that purchase? Not the whole thing, because I think that's a little unfair, but something, Sure. That's a different story. I've seen it in both cases. I've done it with major encyclopedic museums here in Manhattan. Uh, what is a different thing. They want a specific painting. And the guy says, listen, will you help us with this? Or even will you buy the whole painting? It's not that expensive. And you're happy to have the next next school. And I'm okay with that. I've also had galleries tell me, yeah, you can buy one of these for anyone you want. But pick a museum and, and, and get them to take one. It's like, funny that's, story. That's not my job. I went into a young gallery in New York. And I was looking at an emerging artist a couple years ago, and the paintings were 40000 which I already thought were way too expensive for this artist. And I said, oh, how much are the paintings? They're 40000 But you have to buy one for a museum to get one. So I just looked at the, I looked at the gallerist, and I said, oh, interesting. What museums want one? And I got to look like I had lobsters crawling out of my ears. <laughs> They're like, I don't know. That's your job. That's not my fucking job. The, the artist is your client. My client or myself who's buying the... If you tell me this XY museum wants this painting, this particular painting, that's a different thing. They want it, they want you to do the work. Some of these galleries, the good ones don't, but like some of these yeah, young no, ones. No. Yeah, no, I, I see see it all. Um, do you still go to many art fairs? I pretty much go to um, the two Basels. I'll go to any new any New York art fair, any LA art fair. Um, I used to go to Chicago. I don't go as much because the truth of the matter is, I know everybody. People know they could trust me. They trust my clients. They know my clients. I make sure all the all my clients know the dealers. Mm. Love for them to meet the artists um, as well, if, if that's a possibility. So to go there when everything, you know, if you go to an art fair, everything's sold before you get there. Yeah, I, I find it to be less and less uh, a place that I buy art. I find it's very helpful for new clients not to acquire art, but it's a, as, as along with museums, it's a very efficient way to see a ton of different art and to be able to compare and contrast what things cost, you know, on a primary level to educate their eye and figure out what they might really be interested in. Um, I agree. You know, along with museums. And to introduce them to the dealers in person. And, yeah, exactly. And to start that. And I would say even for, I have a couple of established clients and they'll come to Basel Basel only, for instance, or they'll pick one fair year just to check in. They might not live in a major art world hub, but it's a great way for them to walk around, say hi to people and remind dealers that it's a real person that, yeah. that we're acquiring work for the collection. The social aspect is important, you know, just beyond the actual transactional buying of art, right? Oh, I love it. Listen, we were Basel was fun. We all hung mm-hmm. out. We had yeah. drinks. We go. We go to Joe Stone Crab. I mean, we had a blast. You go see the art, but it was the best part about Basel for me was walking clients around because mm-hmm. I, the dealers who I do business with, they know my clients. They know, hey, this is for X Y Z. It's getting invoiced to X Y Z. That's another pet peeve when when. Uh, 
an advisor, at least how I work, my clients get invoiced directly from the gallery. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never understood it except in rare, rare occasions. Um, yeah, because well, if you don't know who you're dealing with, I mean... It makes everything more complicated. It's so much easier. You invoice my client, send me the invoice, I'll make it to, okay. I will send the client the invoice along with my advisory invoice. So pet peeves, advising pet peeves would be if, if the client is not... Um, Disclosing who their client is and it's not billed directly to the advisors. Yeah. Do, you, do you do any retainer work? I don't. I have nothing wrong with it. I don't do contracts. It's a handshake. If someone, the best deals in my life I had on handshakes, the worst deals in my life I had the most stringent legal contacts, uh, contracts. I don't do I don't do them, but I, I totally get why people do them. Yeah, I mean I I do both, uh, and I really really like uh, retainers because I like that level of trust. And then when I call them saying you need to buy this right now, there's it, they really know that it's not about any financial incentive for me. Right. That my what I make is not attached to that, and I can push what they're willing to spend. And be like, no, this is important. I think it's a great model, and I'm not against it. I've just never done it with my clients, um, but I do think I it's, it's a great model. And the other thing. You and I, we charge our clients. I, you know, I talk to friends with a lot of young gallerists, uh, gallerists of all ages, but especially young. And when I'm buying something for a client, they'll say, well, you know, we're giving your client 10% off. We can't give you anything. I was like, no, 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 no. My client pays me. So a lot of times you have these advisors. Talk about a red flag meme. Like that's the key one. If you have an advisor that's getting paid by the gallery, because whose interests are they representing? So right. this is for gallerists. If the advisor is not getting paid by the client, that is not their client. Hmm. They are not respecting their access. They're not respecting the rules. They're not respecting anything. So if if you have to pay the advisor to get the client to buy art, I would really think twice. I, I have this rule. I only want to have clients that at a cocktail party will introduce me as their art advisor. That's good. That's a great. You agree know, because that's how you that's how you know like with with relation or if it's just some guy you know that maybe you helped get something once. Uh, and I think a lot of the shadier uh, red flag advisors they would never be introduced that way by the people that they consider their clients. Oh, you see that they're runners. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll mm-hmm. get so and there's people and I won't do that. And I'm you know I understand if you need to, need to make a living, do what you have to do. I just don't want to do that. I don't want to go fetch. Right. For people. I, I want to build collections. I work with collectors. Believe me, if I did that, if I did a lot of some of this shady secondary bullshit, probably even some of this stupid BOGO crap, I, I would probably make a lot more money. But you know what? I sleep fine. I don't I don't have to turn a corner and be like, oh, I don't want to see him because of this happened. Yeah, and, you, and like like you were saying before, it means you can if you live an honest life, you can say whatever you want and have any opinions you want and not have to live in any sort of shame and just feel like totally okay with it. Um, yeah, I always often think that, oh, I would, I would make a lot more money if I, if I cut corners, if I did shady things, but I think you and I are also in this for like 40, 50 years. Yeah, like I whatever our time, I want to live this to the day I die. Like, it's, it's the no, best no, no. business in the world. I mean, we got to, we get to deal in art, deal with people we like, you know, our whole business is drinking great wine. If you drink or going to great restaurants, going mm-hmm. to art fairs, looking at culture, meeting the, uh, the artists who are the cultural bastions of this time. Like I, it's, it's the greatest for thing. me it meeting is. the clients. Maybe. I have amazing conversations with the clients who have very different lives than me. Just about, you know, their world, about yeah, business, about politics. They have such a different perspective. Like I love that part of it. I just, I find it so fascinating. Um, I think we covered. We didn't cover it all. Like we could, we could go for hours. But like, okay. I'm feeling good. Do we miss anything that you wanted to hit I on? Think, I mean, I think the other pet peeve is I think this promise gift thing. I won't do that for clients <laughs> either. I think a lot of those promise gifts um, don't end up going to the museums. Uh, it's not enforceable. We saw, you know, there was an artist, a young artist that came up to auction. It was sold for 4.6 million. It was a world record for the young artist, and that was owned as a promise gift to go to a museum in Texas, and they. For whatever reason, that collector who gave the promised gift negotiated his way with the museum not to give it to them and to sell it. So I think that's another thing. Negotiated, huh? I, I'm going to tell you, and if this isn't already being done, it will be done. People will be buying their way out of promised gifts from museums to get out. Well, I mean, there's different models. I, I've definitely done my fair, a couple of promise gifts, a few, and I, I believe in them. I think they can be a great model for real collectors. Yeah, real you collectors know, but, that are on the board of a museum. Yeah. Not some, again, I have yeah, to yeah. make a caveat. If you're on the board of an institution, you want to make a promise gift to an institution that you were intimately involved with and giving to, that's one thing. I'm saying someone walks in the gallery and like, no, Ben, we're not going to sell you one. But if you make it a promise gift to, you know... Yeah, yeah, Whatever, that, yeah, that, that, you know, I, the yeah. Bayonne contemporary. Yeah, but I don't think gallery should. I mean, that's not how. That's not how promise gift historically have worked or should. That's work. how it's been working with a lot of places lately. Yeah, yeah, I, I, did, I wasn't even aware of that because yeah. the only time I've done it is basically people that are trustees of the museum. That's Different a promise story. Gift they're supporting. And we get their to get to live with it for a few years and then no, you know. No, I have clients who are on the boards of museum. Don't, that's a different story. I'm saying, hey, if you make this a promise gift to any museum, you can get this work. 
But what I see happening now is, you, you know, the museum curators, the, you know, if, Nate, if you're a museum curator, I'll say, mm -hmm. hey, this painting's worth $3 million at auction. I'm 46 years old. You're not getting this thing for 40 years. How about I give you a million dollars? Let me out of it. <laughs> and that's going to happen if it's not already happening. Sadly. That's quite sad to hear. I mean, that <laughs> that's just, I mean... My my last pet peeve is you know being seated at the sole inside table when the entire rest of the dinner party okay, is outside. Okay, okay, enough. The, the, we've been we've been trash talking this for months now. Come on, <laughs> I'll never let it go. I'll oh never, never let it go. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at holding on well, to funky shit like this. While we have like you, we haven't done this in a while, Benjamin. But, yeah. but off the top of your head, favorite places to eat in New York City, London. No, in the world, you in live the world. in Vegas. You know, give yeah. give your top three restaurants best, in the best world. Best restaurants. They can be classic, red, know, whatever. Know, it's really tough. So it doesn't have to be well, the I'm best. I'm going to say New York because uh, we're in New York. Sure, sure. Places I go a lot. Mm -hmm. I go to Minetta Tavern a lot. Love it. I like Keith McNally's restaurants. Oh, I love Keith McNally. Yeah. I mean, I, I think his restaurants are great. I, I go to, I pretty much go to all his restaurants. Italian, you know, I'm old school Italian. I love Emilio Bellato's. I'm there a lot. Mm -hmm. I haven't been there in years. Let's fucking go. Let's oh, go. We'll go. Yeah, yeah, I go went, all the time. I went like eight months ago. Unbelievable. George Condo's always so there. Good. And I know George well. <laughs> He's always there. He's friends with the owner. He'll draw on a placemat for him. It's really love it. Love old it. Old school Italian place. I had I had uh, my 39th birthday party, rented out the back room there. I go there That's a great. lot. I go to Odie on a lot because it's a lot of, of course. I'm going tomorrow for the Charles Gaines dinner at Hauser and Worth. Uh, Very nice. So um, I go there. Peter Luger's I love. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably my favorite steak in, in uh, you know in the New York borough. My favorite steak in Manhattan is the Minetta Tavern. The I was going to say, the, two with the, it's uh, amazing. It's an incredible steak. I'm going there tonight. Ah, love it. So I think that that's a place. I'm, I'm Right now I'm living in Chelsea. I go to cook shop a lot. Of course, got it. I mean, where else to go? <laughs> right. But um, yeah, those are, I mean, set a mezzo. I can, I can mm -hmm. give a ton of, Italian, you know, scalliatella. Those are kind of my favorite places to go. Wow. There you have it. All right. That's that's, that's the list. That's all I got, bro. Well, thank you so thank much you for so coming much on the yeah, pod. This is an fun. amazing conversation. Oh, God. What, all right. What now I'm hungry as fuck. All right, man. Yeah, me too. Let's right. go eat. Note, Note to Bene. Bene. Out.